Hey now, we are getting over and I am Silver King, Adam Silverstein, here to lead you through these hard times. With episode 562 of your favorite professional wrestling podcast. That's right, getting over is back once again, and it is Thursday, so you know exactly what that means. We'll be breaking down everything that happened over the last week across NXT and AEW. But not only that, this episode will serve as your AEW Revolution Ultimate Preview as we break down every single match on AEW's first pay-per-view of 2024. We'll provide some insight, some predictions, and a pre-show expectation grade all before this episode is out. We have a ton to get to today, as we usually do here at Getting Over. So allow me to remind you straight off the top that this show is all about Defy. So please head on over to Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Leave a five-star rating on Apple. Take a little extra time. Leave a five-star written review. If you do, we will read it live right here on the show. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast for episode drops, news, analysis, highlights, all of that good stuff. Twitter is also where you can send us questions and comments via tweet or DM that we frequently will read on the show. Again, at Getting Overcast on Twitter. Please also remember, I happen to love the number five. And I hope you do as well, because for $5 a month or 50 for the entire year, you can become an official Getting Overhead. Just visit buymeacoffee.com slash getting over, sign up, you will get exclusive news posts every Friday along with bonus audio, the fastest five minutes in professional wrestling, instant reactions to Raw, NXT, Dynamite, and SmackDown every single week. Again, you can get all of that at buymeacoffee.com slash getting over. Now, we do have a lot to get to today. Not only are we going to break down NXT itself and we're back to five hours of AEW with Dynamite Collision and Rampage all airing once again this week. We do have your AEW Revolution Ultimate Preview. That is going to be the true main event of today's show, meaning it will be the last segment on the program. We're going to kick off with NXT, then we're going to move to AEW. We'll do the AEW Revolution Ultimate Preview after that. As always, we will have timestamps in the episode description. So if you want to jump around, if you're here over the weekend, right before Revolution, and you just want to hear the ultimate preview for the show, you can find the timestamp and jump to that. But as always, I hope you listen to the entire show. With that said, let's dive into NXT. Ilya Dragunov opened the show. He immediately called out Carmelo Hayes. Melo entered with like 10 security guards admitting to using Dragunov while saying that he makes him sick for posturing and nice suits and stuff like that. Melo said he wouldn't go face-to-face with them until he sees a contract and the title match is official, the presumption being that would happen later in the show. We later saw Mello backstage, still surrounded by security, basically saying he wasn't going anywhere until the contract was drafted, signed by Dragunov, and just awaiting his signature. This came across like the shortest opening segment I can remember, and it also felt like it was taped. There was strange artificial background noise that's usually not used on NXT, and I didn't hear it at any other part of the show, just in this segment. Mello's promo was uncharacteristically boring, though it was fun to see him try to act hard while surrounded by security. Interesting is that NXT was back live this week. Booker T was on commentary. He returned. But there wasn't a live indicator anywhere on the screen. So it was just a really weird start to the show. I'm like, wait, I thought this was live. Wait, it is. 
but they're inserting audio, but they're only doing it for this one segment. I'm just not exactly sure what they were doing off the top here. Uh, Obafemi approached Ava in her office, wondering who will be his next victim. She said she was working on it. Droganov suddenly appeared behind him. There was a brief stare down between them before Femi left with a smile. I can't even imagine what a match between those two guys would look like. <laughs> Big meaty man slapping me. <laughs> I mean, not so much big and meaty when it comes to Droganov, but slapping meat, you bet your ass. Holy cow, that would be special. Brooks Jensen then confronted Oba in the parking lot trying to look tough. Femi disrespected him, but Jensen promised to bust him up, which got his attention. I don't understand why Brooks would deserve a title match when he just lost clean to Josh Briggs last week. I mean, a challenge is a challenge. I get that. But WWE does not generally book this way. And for me, it was a major plot hole that a guy can lose to his best friend and then just because he gained confidence, immediately get a title match, particularly when he's not even been a singles wrestler on the brand for that long. So I just didn't like any really part of this. Uh, Dijak fought Luca Crucifino. Dijak had a great sell on a sliding dropkick through the ropes, flinging himself all the way over the announce table. Luca then hit a cannonball, but got his life chopped out of him. Uh, Dijak eventually hit the discus boot and feast your eyes for the win. Crucifino did well for himself here and credit to Dijak for selling his ass off on his behalf. I cannot believe the dude wrestled in dress boots. I have no idea how that's possible, but he did work pretty well. Joe Gacy entered after the bell, having broken free from his straitjacket. Luca hit Dijak from behind with a crowbar. That gave Gacy an opening to get a few shots in. Then we saw D'Angelo family backstage with Tony telling Stax to go get Luca. I guess he liked what he saw, the aggressiveness, all of that. The Gacy attack was whatever. The Crucifino absolutely belongs in D'Angelo family, either as a crooked lawyer or a fixer. Think like Saul Goodman. It's just too perfect. Later backstage, Dijak was in a screaming match with Ava. Presumably, Gacy was holding a camera. He approached them, then he attacked Dijak for a second straight brawl. It was fine. It led to a booking uh, for NXT Roadblock, which is going to be next week. We'll discuss that at the end of this segment. So Mello, Ilya, and Ava met in the ring for the main event of NXT. They didn't say much of anything before D'Angelo family randomly interrupted. Hayes threatened to have security escort Tony out. But Tony snapped his fingers. The security all jumped off the ring apron, exited, and he took Ava's seat at the table. Obviously, Mello was shocked by this. D'Angelo said he's been sick of seeing the NXT title picture dominated by the same saga for the last few months, so he wants to flip it on its head. Mello tried to interrupt, but Tony snapped at him, shutting him up. D'Angelo promised he would earn a title match at Stand and Deliver, saying Ava agreed that they could do a number one contendership next week and it was Dragunov's decision. He could either fight Mello for the title or watch them have a number one contendership with the winner fighting him at Stand and Deliver. So Ilya, like a smart babyface, chose the number one contendership option. He claimed it was because he wanted to see if Mello could actually earn something for once. But really, if you're a champion, why should you want to defend your title? Even if you're a face, let people fight you and earn that opportunity and then defend it at a later date. So it actually made sense in kayfabe and in storyline. Mello shot back, calling Ilya a coward for ducking him. Then he tore down Tony for being nothing more than a mafioso, calling himself the Don of NXT. He ended up shoving D'Angelo backwards into Dragunov before spiking him through the table. Now, given the show is called Roadblock, a number one contendership does make sense. But at the same time, we spent like three weeks expecting a title match between Dragunov and Hayes, only for that now to not be happening next week. It seems pretty telegraphed that Trick Williams will return cost Mello his number one contendership. They'll have a non-title singles match at stand and deliver, maybe with a stipulation, loser leaves NXT. I could see something like that happening. 
that's not the worst idea. But at the same time, Dragunov, D'Angelo, it's not really that interesting. Tony has been in the tag team division for a year. He's never had significant success as a singles performer. It would be quite a quick elevation to put him in the top title match on the biggest NXT show of the year with the snap of the fingers just because you need someone to fill that slot. I would have much rather had someone else come up for the main roster and get some main roster star power on stand and deliver as opposed to doing this. On top of that, Melo and Ilya were just plain boring on Tuesday night, which is not normally the case with them. Not sure what it was. It just didn't hit for me. D'Angelo did have a commanding presence and it was badass the way security just dropped off the ring at the snap of his fingers. So him taking on more of a serious Don role, that works. But again, him possibly being number one contender via maybe distraction win over Melo, that really doesn't work. And the fact that we're not getting Melo and Dragunov, even though we've already seen it, I thought we were going to get it a third time and it seems like we're not going to. So that's frustrating as well. Lyra Valkyria opened hour two, all dressed and up and made up in the ring. She wished Shotzi a speedy recovery and promised a title match when she gets back from injury. She also shouted out Lash Legend for stepping up in the open challenge last week. Lyra was out there to deliver on her promise of a surprise for Tatum Paxley after she stayed backstage as promised last week. Tatum surprised by appearing from under the barricade, holding a black feather. She reiterated that she's completely devoted to Lyra and she keeps her word because of that. Valkyria announced that she got Ava to agree to have them team up next week against the Kabuki Warriors for the women's tag team titles. Tatum freaked out, thinking that now they're going to be together forever and that Lyra was softening up to her. Her character work has honestly been exceptional. And obviously, I love the booking with the titles being used across all three brands as initially intended when the championships were first created. This was a very cute, energetic segment with both women showing a lot of personality. This pairing has helped Valkyria be way less robotic on screen and Paxley's gimmick and storyline, it just remains really interesting to me. We later got a video package of Asuka and Kyrie Sane highlights from NXT. Lyra and Tatum were impressed while watching. Backstage, Jada Parker came up talking shit. Ariana Grace tried to play Peacemaker, only to be told off by Parker and Valkyria. Nothing extra there, but we will go back to that in a moment. Just as Lyra and Tatum were expressing excitement in the ring, this segment happened in the ring, Ridge Holland randomly interrupted, saying he didn't want to steal their time, but he had something important to get off his chest. So Holland gets in the ring. He's explaining his actions about the chair shots and all that. And as he's going through this, I'm just like, who cares? You're a wrestler. You used a chair and you were being attacked three on one. No one has a problem with this. Like, it's like it seems like he's in his head about this as an issue where no one else like Ava's not trying to stop him. Security's not threatening him to jail him or anything like that. It's just this guy in his own head about using a steel chair in wrestling, which is totally fine. Anyway, he was explaining his actions when suddenly the black and white text graphics appeared all around the PC. And suddenly there was a voiceover with the graphics that said, truth will ultimately prevail, but there is pain bringing it to light. Then Holland got attacked from behind by a guy in a hoodie, wielding a chair, only for the hood to be removed under a spotlight, revealing Sean Spears formerly known as Ty Dillinger in WWE. The crowd popped huge for him. For me, it was one of the most completely unexpected out of left field developments in a long time across any brand. Just completely random and out of nowhere. I would never have guessed. I mean, it would have taken me probably a thousand tries 
to figure out that those messages were referring to Sean Spears of all people. The Holland promo, like I said, it was boring and pointless, but that did make for the perfect avenue segue for a return to change the momentum of the segment. Don't get me wrong, the ceiling on Sean Spears is low, but there's no harm in having veteran guys in NXT to help the developmental prospects. And that's what Spears has always been, unironically, a good hand. Think of him in like the Cassius Ono, Chris Hero type of role back in the day from NXT. I wouldn't be surprised if he's already doing a player coach type of deal, either now or in the future with the WWE Performance Center. It's also very possible, the way this whole thing transpired, that WWE initially offered this spot to QT Marshall. And that would explain the delay in him leaving the company, not really signing anywhere, and then only returning to AEW in a non-wrestling role. It's obviously notable that Spears is using at least a similar chairman gimmick and being called Sean Spears for the first time in WWE. The overall look and feel, it was similar to his AEW run for a return, unironically. I gave it a, uh, a 10, a 10, a fucking 10. Uh, it was a 10. I mean, it's always fun when something legitimately surprising happens. And like I said, this just came out of nowhere. I do know he runs a wrestling school with Tyler Breeze, who does content work for WWE already. So now I wonder whether Breeze winds up back on screen eventually in a wrestling role. I thought we might get Tyler Breeze when Maximum Male Models were on the main roster. That never happened, even though it was pitched. This also means with Spears back, an Iconics reunion is not impossible. Now they're both pregnant or just had children. I forget who is who right now. Um, So that's not gonna be happening anytime soon but I think it's fair to say that at least the door is open. Later, Spears was in the NXT parking lot, asked why he hit Holland with the chair. He said he likes Ridge, but he's been lying to himself for far too long. Spears said, the truth can bring you to your knees and that's why he's in NXT. He looked super strange wearing a matching vest and dress pants with no shirt underneath. And I actually think the contacts he was wearing in AEW, like for his eyes, were a plus and helped him appear less plain. He just looked like a plain Jane dude here. Someone, whether it's whoever's dressing him, um, himself, him with his style, he just has to add something to that appearance because right now it's just another dude, pretty much. But given Holland was out there to address the chair gimmick and Spears is the chair man, then clearly this had purposeful build and clearly they had this planned for a period of time, I would say probably two months. Idris Anofe and Malik Blade fought the Good Brothers. Anofe hit half a jackhammer on Carl Anderson, who avoided a high-risk move with a perfect spinebuster. Magic Killer followed for the OC victory. Chase U interrupted the post-match, threatening an ass-whooping. Then Nathan Frazier and Axiom came out, demanding them first. As they all argued, LWO attacked the Good Brothers with missile dropkicks from behind. Then we saw the Wolf Dogs wearing sunglasses in the crow's nest. They just watched it all go down. This was all just fine. Thought we were owed an explanation from the Good Brothers for their decision to go down to NXT. Maybe I'm misremembering, but I believe that was alluded to last week in the parking lot promo. So that was disappointing, especially because we got the Good Brothers a second time on the show. Later backstage, Braun Breaker tried to convince Baron Corbin to get his plain black leather jacket spray painted, or at least for him to get tanned like Braun. The Good Brothers came up sarcastically saying Corbin is pretending to love NXT, which he flipped saying he actually does love it because it's turned his career around. They said they came down and found a bit of fire hitting the magic killer, but it wouldn't take them eight months like Corbin to win gold. Corbin shot back about AJ Styles slapping KA, and it got contentious with a future challenge laid out. So we got another segment with the Good Brothers, 
yet still no real explanation like Corbin gave previously. But this was well done as a realistic segment, created some animosity between the two top teams in the division now. And the Good Brothers, of course, have the pedigree. It seems clear that this is going to be the stand and deliver match for the titles, probably get some main roster talent on the show beyond them. But for now, it's at least the Good Brothers on that show. Again, not officially booked. I'm just making the assumption. Kalani Jordan fought Kiana James. Jordan hit an inverted Russian leg sweep only to eat a strong spine buster by James. Izzy Dame pulled Kalani's leg as she tried to springboard. She took a nasty, gnarly spill on the ring apron, the hardest part of the ring, with Kiana hitting the deal breaker for the win. The deal breaker is far, far inferior to the 401k. As I've said before, I have no idea why she changed her finisher. Kalani did herself well early, but there were way too many handsprings and unnecessary gymnastics type antics that just did not transition smoothly to wrestling moves. It's fine to show that skill, but it should be done somewhat naturally as part of her moveset. It came across almost like she was playing herself in WWE 2K24, like trying out the buttons in the middle of a match to see what her character could do. Definite improvement needed. Kalani has shown she's better than this. That said, this was the best Kiana has looked in a while. Thea Hale was depressed telling her girls backstage that she spoke with Riley Osborne, who said they're better off as friends because the girl on the date was not who he expected when he asked her out. JC Jane said that's because Riley probably expected the loser, the over-energetic version of Thea, but now she's finally cool. Then she dissed Fallon Henley as a moron who begs people to be her friend. Jane said that Hale is better off now, and she also called Andre Chase and Ducats and losers, saying that she had to save Chase U. Kiana and Izzy came up giving JC props for selling out the calendar three times, and they confirmed that Fallon sucks. Then they all kind of walked off to be caddy together, with Thea sitting there still depressed, not liking that she was called a loser. This might have been the best acting work that Hale's done yet in NXT, basically coming to the realization that her friends think she's a loser, even if they said that's in the past. Jane was great too. More than anything, this made me badly want to see like a mean girl stable of Kiana, Izzy, JC, and Jasmine Nix. It would be like a more modern, less sexual toxic attraction. I actually think it could be a big hit if they were to put it together. But now we have the beginnings of Thea and JC splitting, which is likely gonna play out at or around Stand and Deliver, at least one would think. The NXT Heritage Cup was on the line, Noam Dar defending against Charlie Dempsey. Dar and Oro Mensa were super confident backstage despite the catch clause. This might've been the most fun and clear promo from Dar since he moved to the United States. Dempsey stepped forward from no quarter catch crew during introductions, and he shocked with an early pinfall on a backslide with a flip over kind of trap emphasis. Then after the bell rang, Damon Kemp delivered a huge cheap shot forearm to the back of Dar's head, right behind the referee's back. Round three was all about submissions and counters with Dempsey nearly knocked out at the end. Dar took advantage with a Nova roller to even at 1-1 in round four. Round five saw no quarter distractions. That allowed Dempsey to catch Dar with a double underhook German suplex pinning combination to win the Heritage Cup. Well-deserved for Dempsey and a smart change, especially if he's gonna be doing more international matches, he can bring it with him. Dempsey has kind of been like wandering in purgatory in NXT. And while metaphor is immensely over, the cup was almost weighing them down a bit. Noam hold it for far too long, held it for far too long. And the entire scene just needed to be freshened up. It also fits with the no quarter gimmick perfectly, the Heritage Cup. The match started hot. It really dragged in the end. That was unfortunate. The Heritage Cup rules, they're different, they're unique, but they're not necessarily better than a regular wrestling match. And sometimes when I see that match ongoing, I feel like they have a couple good rounds booked and then a couple other rounds are just kind of messy. So 
I really want them to put it all together and have a good five-round Heritage Cup match. Roxanne Perez fought Chikara Jackson. We saw footage of Perez throwing a fit after losing out on the open challenge last week. Jackson confronted, saying Lash stays ready so she doesn't have to get ready. They started fighting. That led to the match. Next to the parking lot, there may be no more dangerous place in NXT right now than the women's locker room. The men's locker room must be a sanctuary by comparison. Lash came out with Chikara, but quickly got ejected for interfering. It did not take long for Perez to catch her in the new crossface submission for the win. Roxy's gimmick, it's really working for me. She's just unhinged and she's selling it pretty well, including a clip of her storming out of the PC late in the show. Lyra versus Roxy is almost assuredly the stand and deliver match. And I'm here for a title change in that spot. Gigi Dolan fought Jada Parker. They both approached Ava wanting to discuss opportunities and it immediately got contentious leading to Ava making the obvious match. Parker hit her elevated seated senton and then a running blockbuster. Ariana Grace then came out pleading for them to stop. This is going back to the segment we were talking about earlier. She literally grabbed Gigi's arm only to eat a headbutt with Jada catching Gigi from behind for a running punch and the upset victory. It's strange that Dolan is being overlooked in this division. I'm not sure why her push has stalled, but I guess she'll get a win over Grace coming up pretty soon. This was done primarily so Parker could continue her momentum, which is fine. But the whole idea of Grace not wanting people to fight in a wrestling company, I know it's like tongue in cheek to a degree, but it's kind of dumb. Like she knows she's a wrestler. She's been involved in wrestling matches. So that's just kind of tough to compute for me. One thing I will say as well, we praise Jada Parker and her potential, her ceiling last week. She's got to have a better finisher. A diving punch just does not get the job done. Von Wagner fought Lexus King. Mr. Stone accidentally got run over by Wagner at ringside. That provided enough of a distraction for King to catch Von with a running knee. Stone then distracted as King went for the coronation, allowing Wagner to catch him from behind with a deep roll-up for the surprise win. Lexus immediately attacked and took out Von's knee. Stone pulled him off only to eat the coronation himself as Wagner continued selling the knee. Nothing wrong with this necessarily, I'd have liked Vaughn to win with a move that's not a roll-up. Wins for him are so few and far between that you might as well make it impactful when he actually does get a W, especially because this was one of four distraction finishes across seven matches in one episode. That was way too much, far too many similar finishes on a show where that's normally not the case. And there was also a new vignette showing a beach with waves crashing and see you soon written in the sand. I presume this is for Sol Ruka, given she's been out for about 10 months now with her torn ACL. Will be great to get her back, but it's unfortunate that her partner, Danny Palmer, is now dealing with a torn ACL herself. Soul's arrow was pointing way up before she got injured, so hopefully she comes back and she's off and running, maybe kind of similar to Lash Legend. That's the progress I'd like to see from her, but it may take a little bit for her to get over some of that rust. So that was NXT. Let's do a quick preview of NXT Roadblock, which of course is ahead next week. We're going to have Carmelo Hayes against Tony D'Angelo for a number one contendership. Seems obvious the trick returns and costs Melo here. Sometimes predictable things are good, but as I said earlier, Tony randomly becoming number one contender out of nowhere, that's not good. Tag team championship, Wolf Dogs defending against Chase U. The Wolf Dogs are not losing to Chase U on television just weeks after winning the titles. Women's tag team championship, Kabuki Warriors defending against Lyra and Tatum. Clearly, the Kabuki Warriors are not losing the titles a month before WrestleMania. You also have Joe Gacy against DiJack in an Asylum match. I believe the last one of these was so long ago, it involved Dean Ambrose. It should be a banger, but it's also a match we've already seen recently, meaning Gacy and DiJack. 
I think technically twice, but really once in terms of a match that went on for a period of time. I'm sure I'm sure it's still going to be very good and entertaining. But for a TV special, even though we're talking two title matches, a number one contendership, and a rivalry feud match, it doesn't feel like it's as strong a card as it could have been. If they add Obafemi in a title match, you're going to get another one. But Femi's not losing to Brooks Jensen, so that's three title matches, all of which you know are going to be retentions. So, you know, it's a decent show. Now, NXT this week actually did its lowest rating since the summer. And we don't talk ratings week to week on this podcast, whether it's this episode or the WWE episode. We mention them when they're notable, but that is notable. I think WWE, you know, when they had Dominic Mysterio and Becky Lynch and other occasional main roster superstars down there, they did a really nice job ballooning up those ratings. And I know one of the main reasons they did it was to get the TV deal, which is now secured with the CW. But that doesn't mean that the foot should be taken off the gas pedal. NXT was able to sustain, even with Becky leaving, even with Dom leaving. But it is now to the point where this week of television, it was, as you could tell from my breakdown earlier, it was just kind of rough. There wasn't a lot to get excited about. The Wolf Dogs were exciting. They've already won the titles. Trick Williams, you were excited for him. He hasn't been on in weeks. And he's not going to be in a title match, it doesn't seem like, at Stand and Deliver. So now it's just a regular rivalry feud against Mello. So a lot of that momentum they had has kind of dissipated. And yeah, their rating, I think, was under 600,000, which, you know, maybe it was a one-week aberration. Maybe for Roadblock next week, they're back at 700,000 and no one's concerned anymore. But I just didn't like what I saw from the rating. And I, I, I it could be a harbinger of things to come. Right now, the road to Stand and Deliver it's really not that exciting for me. And I'm someone who watches the show every week and tell you tells you all constantly that you should be watching the show because it's super entertaining. It's consistent. It's cohesive. You know, a lot of storytelling on it. Cool to see people develop. But yeah, I mean, if you asked me, hey, was it worth watching NXT this week? I would tell you no. I didn't find it to be one of their best episodes. Now, folks, you know 2024 is here in full swing. We're two months into the year and WrestleMania is approaching. That means it's time for a New Year's resolution check-in with our friends at Manscaped. Newsflash, it is never too late to level up your grooming game and keep your bush tamed. Manscaped's new Lawnmower 5.0 is every man's cheat code to look good, feel good, and turn the page on confidence this year. Whether you're going for that Drew McIntyre trim, the Cody Rhodes clean shaven look, this trimmer has you covered. Trusted by over 10 million men worldwide, now is your time to get a grip on your grooming with our exclusive offer. Go to manscaped.com and use code GETTINGOVER, that's one word, GETTINGOVER, for 20% off plus free shipping. Let me repeat that. 20% off plus free shipping. I like it. I like it a lot. The ball has dropped, but don't drop the ball on your balls. I've been a huge fan of the lawnmower, the new fifth generation trimmer. It's actually not just a trimmer. It's a perfect groomer, not just for the down low area, but really your entire body. It is two different skin safe blade heads. There's a standard that trims and then a foil blade that lets you go all the way smooth. So not only has trimming been easier and faster, but my beard has been coming out sharper too. Now we're not Lexus King sharp. I mentioned that on Tuesday. I'm not a Dominican barber. I can't get those lines perfect. I don't have that skill, but this razor can get you there. This trimmer can get you that sharp line. I just got to figure out how to do it. The other thing I like is that it's waterproof and that helps for the beard certainly, but it's super clutch when grooming downstairs in the shower. The other thing that's pretty cool 
They threw in some boxers. There's a shed 2.0 toiletry bag. It's pretty nice to have those accoutrements as I'm about to do a bunch of traveling. So look, support us here at Getting Over and up your grooming game at the same time. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code getting over. Again, that's one word, getting over at manscaped.com. Embrace a new you and definitely embrace a new trimmer courtesy of Manscaped. Your support of getting over when we rarely have these promotional opportunities. It is greatly appreciated. These are seriously great trimmers and fantastic deals for you. Let's move over and break down the entire week across AEW. As I mentioned, we will spend the first portion of this segment discussing a ton of stuff that has nothing directly to do, at least as of the recording of this podcast, with Revolution. And then we will give you the AEW Revolution Ultimate Preview, which will include all of the matches on the show, predictions for those matches, and analysis about what happened in go-home moments across this past week's three shows leading into Revolution. Now, to kick things off, we got to do this because this is, you know, the situation with AEW booking right now. Went ahead and evaluated the 15 matches that we got across five hours of AEW television. Ten of them this week had no storyline relevance or build, nothing specific leading to them happening. Five, however, did. So that's 33%. I think we mentioned a couple of weeks ago that AEW was at like a 50-50 proposition. We said, hey, you get to like 70 30 and we're going to stop doing this, but they're heading the other direction over the last two weeks. I forget what the exact number was last week, but it was around 33%. And here we are again, only 33% of the matches had legitimate build or reasoning to happening on AEW television this week. So as noted, let's start by breaking down everything that does not directly have to do with Revolution. On Rampage, Sammy Guevara came out mad the powerhouse Hobbs, put him through a table. He said Don Callis is sucking the life out of his career and it's too late for him. Not untrue. Callis called him weak, pathetic, and a cuck because I think he's contracted to use that word once per promo. Hobbs failed to attack. Guevara caught him with a tope and three chair shots. Hobbs stopped the GTH with a lariat, adding two spinebusters and world's strongest slam. Probably the best thing on Rampage, but that's really not saying anything. On Collision, we had the match. Guevara, Hobbs, no disqualification. Sammy ate the slam into the steel steps and then thrice into the ring apron. Hobbs then forced Kevin Kelly to give up his belt, so they beat each other with it, which was a pretty fun, cool spot, taking the belt from a guy on commentary. Guevara hit a cutter into the steel steps. Two tables were set up ringside with Sammy doing a nothing jump into Powerhouse on the apron. He caught Guevara and slammed him through both tables with a spine buster. They straight up exploded. Great spot. Sammy recovered during commercial for a GTH and a false finish. Then he hit Hobbs with a monitor, no cover. Hobbs laid himself on two tables. Sammy grabbed a gimmicked beer bottle and broke it over his head. Then he set up an extra tall ladder in the ring and hit a swanton bomb outside. He nailed him perfectly. He also cut his hand, but shit happens. It was quite a sight. Hobbs was set up on another table inside, yet he was of sound mind enough to shove the referee into Sammy and hit the world's strongest slam through the table for the win. The spots in this match were excellent. It's fair to question whether the risk of the swanton was necessary in a non-title TV match for a restarted feud. It's fair to question Hobbs getting his ass kicked by Sammy for five minutes only to win in that fashion. But this was entertaining as hell. It was the best thing on Collision in quite some time, simply because these guys went all out. And hell, you could have put this match on Revolution and I would have been okay with it. Four stars, A-. minus On Dynamite, Chris Jericho fought Atlantis Jr. Now there is history between Jericho and Atlantis Sr. that AEW did show us 
through a video package on the show. Then Jericho backstage put over the Atlantis family, saying he wanted this match to repay the favor that his father granted him. Even though this was completely 100% out of nowhere, announced just a few days before the show, I'm going to give this the benefit of the doubt for having a reason for happening, but it really should not have been on a go-home show for a pay-per-view, and it absolutely should not have been the final match on said show. It was clunky as hell, mostly because of Jericho. Atlantis did a deadlift German suplex. Then Jericho did a strange flying head banger off the canvas, which commentary told us wasn't a shitty move because it was part of the preceding video package. It was still a shitty move. Jericho hit a hurricanrana out of the corner, but Atlantis countered Judas effect into his finisher, which Jericho escaped and countered into walls of Jericho and Atlantis senior threw in the towel. So we don't get a submission. We don't get a pinfall. We get a thrown in towel. I didn't have a problem with them doing this match in a vacuum. Again, I just had a problem with it being the penultimate segment on the go home show before the first pay-per-view of the year on a show where they didn't even bother, by the way, to promote the women's championship match. No segments involving Tony Storm, Deanna Perrazzo. They'll probably end up doing it on collision, I'm sure. But this is Dynamite. This is the most watched show. Didn't even talk about the women's match. On Rampage, Brian Keith, Commander, and Penta El Zero Miedo fought Private Party, Matt Seidel, and Top Flight and Action Andretti in a three-way trios match. Commander hit a nice assisted Tornillo in the final sequence before Penta hit Seidel with Fear Factor for the win. The Top Flight and Private Party feud, that's been ongoing. But no one else in this, nor the match itself, had any reason for happening. On Collision, Keith fought Malachi Black. This was Black's first AEW singles match since June 2022. That's 20 months. Let me repeat, Malachi's first AEW singles match in nearly two full years. Keith had a Liger bomb, but Black immediately came back with The End, which is a good name for his finisher. Mark Briscoe attacked with kendo stick after the bell, but Black avoided a shot with a metal spike, and Brody King ran in, hitting him with Dante's Inferno. To end it, all of it was fine. On collision, Bang Bang Scissor Gang beat Iron Savages, and someone called Jacked Jameson in five minutes. Max Caster completely botched his rap. He forgot what words he was going to say after his first bar, and he just let the entire thing go. Block at zero. Big yikes, but not the worst part of the match. That came when Daddy Ass hit a Famouser, only for the dude that took it to fall on the canvas, immediately stand up, run backwards halfway across the ring, and throw himself over the top rope. There is no exaggeration in that description. By the way, this is what Jay White is stuck doing. On Dynamite, White said he's all in with their group. Daddy Ass mentioned Caster's failure, and they decided on doing a different combination of three men for a trios match with Austin Gunn and Anthony Bowens again kind of at odds with each other. This is now bordering on awful. I hate this. I hate this crap. Stop. Stop with the crap. On Rampage, Mariah May beat Anna Jay in a standard fair match. Anna hit a unique backbreaker, but Mariah bit her arm during Queenslayer and then immediately hit Mayday for the win. There's nothing wrong with it other than the fact that it happened in a vacuum. On Rampage, Soraya snapped at a mention of Ruby Soho backstage. Harley Cameron calmed her down. Then Soraya announced that a member of her royal wrestling family, Zack Knight, is now all elite. Harley couldn't get over how hot he is. Then he just stood there with a menacing look on his face. Ruby and Angela Parker were later blushing about their date, saying Soraya's whole promo earlier was weird, which was accurate. Soho then said Soraya is sad and unhappy without her, and she seemed to make a challenge for next week. You just, 
You gotta be kidding me. I wish I had that, uh, I forget if it's the Peyton Royce or Billy Kay. It's probably Billy Kay with that drop. I wish I had that on me. You gotta be kidding me that this guy got signed because he's Paige's brother. Like, what are we doing here? This is for crap. Ruby's promo was solid as usual. She could always talk. It's never been a problem for her. On Collision, Thunder Rosa beat someone called Lady Bird Monroe in two minutes with the Tijuana Bomb. Then she cut a promo into the camera in the corner, which was way more interesting than the match itself. After the bell, she held up her fist, perhaps alluding to the fact that she's joining LFI if and when they ever return. On Collision, Serena D beat Lady Frost in nine minutes after the bell. She said she'd welcome anyone to this growing women's division and put herself over as a wrestler, putting the wrestling back in all elite wrestling. All your sports teams, they're all failures. She's just not a good promo. She's amazing in the ring. There was nothing wrong with this, but I have that sound drop and I like to play it as often as I can. On Rampage, Sky Blue paced backstage angry that Stokely Hathaway cost her a win last week. Julia Hart consoled her, promising to dig graves for all three of the faces. Sky wanted to fight them again for like, I guess the third time, fourth time. On Collision, Stoke apologized for last week. Then Chris Statlander challenged Sky. Hey, we got a women's match on TV with some kind of storyline. What a novel concept. So on Dynamite, we got Stat versus Sky. Stat chucked Blue out of the corner on the canvas and hit, I think it was a Mishinoku driver for a near fall. Stoke offered her a chain and arguing over it between the trio distracted the referee. That allowed Julia to catch Stat with her title belt and Sky hit Code Blue for the win. I thought she had changed her finisher, but Stat sells everything well. So this one was totally fine. It's probably the right winner given the storyline. It was also the best women's match of the week. It's not saying anything given the ones that we just discussed, but I found it to be entertaining. So that really wraps up what happened on AEW TV that did not directly have to do with Revolution. And that allows us to move over to our AEW Revolution Ultimate Preview. We're going to break down every single match on the show. We're going to discuss what happened over the last week in AEW leading into them. We're going to give you predictions. And at the end, a pre-show expectation grade. Let's start with what is now the All-Star Scramble. Now, this was supposed to be something called Meet Madness, which was immensely convoluted. First, the three competitors, Wardlow, Powerhouse Hobbs, and Lance Archer, were completely random. No storyline reason for the match happening. Second, the winner was obvious, Wardlow, given the promo he cut last week. Third, I don't know how you can do a Meet Madness match with only three people, especially when there's plenty of other additional meat on the roster. For example, Big Bill, Miro, Brian Cage. Now, usually when AEW does a match that's going to have, let's say, six or seven competitors, and they only announce a couple, they have the blank kind of vacant stand-ins and the graphics, so you know other people are being added to it. But when it came to Meet Madness, they did not have that. They literally just had those three guys on the card. This, to me, was lazy as hell. They neither had a storyline nor stacked the match. And also, and some of you may disagree with me on this, I get it, but this was like a blatant ripoff of an idea that was just recently put out into the universe. It was either by Big E or on a WWE show interviewing Big E or something like that. And Tony Khan must have literally just said, that's a good idea. I'll take it. Now, I'd not have had that criticism if Meat Madness was built in any way, but it wasn't. And it just continues to feel to me. And look, Meat, quote unquote, is not exclusive to WWE. They don't own meaty wrestling or any of that. But if we're being honest, the reason it's in our parlance as professional wrestling fans 
in 2024 in the last few years is because of the New Day podcast and primarily Big E. And especially because WWE historically has leaned into meaty man wrestling. And the whole thing with like AEW trying to co-opt it, it just feels like they're like attempting to steal it from WWE and take it for themselves. And I, it hits me wrong. It just hits me in the wrong way. I'm not saying they're doing anything wrong. I'm not saying it's malicious. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe this was a completely separate idea that was conjured up and they never saw that clip. I just find it really hard to believe. But it's actually irrelevant because they're not gonna have the meat madness match that they promoted last week. Instead, according to Tony Khan, due to injury, there's gonna be a non-meat scramble match called the All-Star Scramble. But what's wild about it is all three guys in the scramble, Wardlow, Archer, and Hobbs, were the names announced initially for Meat Madness. So it doesn't look like anyone was removed due to injury based on who was already announced. Rather, it seems like they might've added people to the match who were then not cleared and therefore they had to change the match because they didn't have enough meat to have it maintain the Meat Madness name despite continuing with the general concept. So anyway, now we have Chris Jericho, Hook, and Brian Cage. Cage, by the way, is meaty. And then there's gonna be two Rampage qualifying matches. And there's a couple people that are notable there. Penta El Zero Miedo is one of them. But whoever gets added to this is not gonna win it. It's gonna be one of the people already announced. And we also learned on Dynamite that it's gonna be for a number one contendership to the AEW title. It's an absolute mess. Either way, Wardlow better be winning after his promo last week. There is no one involved in this match as of right now that has any business pinning him. My guess is he's an early entrant, second, third, fourth slot, and just ends up running through everyone, comes out of it looking like a powerhouse. We have Will Ospreay against Konosuke Takeshka. Osprey came out on Dynamite. It was his first appearance as a full-timer in AEW. He hyped everyone up, said bruv a bunch of times, and said he's ready to pick up where he left off. The Don Callis family came out. He hugged everyone except for Takeshka. Callis reminded that he's been by Osprey's side for all of his big AEW wins, saying this would be the match of the decade and the family would win no matter who prevails. Then they shook hands, he and Takeshka, but they refused to release the handshake. It got contentious and the fans chanted for Osprey. Now, even though there were no direct hints in this segment, it was clear from the crowd response and the mood of Will's solo promo that he will not only win this match, but leave the family and be a full baby face while doing so. I guess there's a scenario where the Callis family interferes, Takeshka beats him, and that leads to the turn, but that really should not be the case. Osprey needs to be winning this match. There is no reason for him to be aligned with Callis now that he's full-time in AEW, and there is no scenario in which he should lose to Takeshka. So the prediction is easy. Osprey winning as a babyface, anything else, including a Callis screw job, would just be annoying. But Osprey, he needs to start as a babyface in AEW because it allows him to take full advantage of this momentum. His charisma and promo work has improved markedly over the last few years, and you saw it here. Now we're gonna discuss basically two matches at once. FTR versus John Moxley and Claudio Castagnoli in the tag team match, no number one contendership, no title, nothing. And then the Continental Crown, Eddie Kingston defending against Brian Danielson. Mox cut a promo on collision, telling a WWE story, putting over Claudio's work ethic and stamina, 
Then he accepted the challenge. This promo segment went twice as long as it needed to. FTR then beat the Shane Taylor promotions with a doomsday device in a meaningless match where they got way too much offense. Taylor's gear was also horrendous. Dax Harwood cut a much, much better promo after this match, but he didn't say anything too notable. On Collision, Danielson beat June Akiyama. Brian backstage talked about respecting June, but said he'd beat his ass because Eddie would be on commentary and Akiyama is his idol. Kingston has like a dozen Japanese wrestling idols, apparently. Danielson then ranted about him wasting his potential. This was well-wrestled, technical match, as one would expect. Akiyama avoided the Bazaiku knee, only to turn around and eat it from Danielson. 3.75 stars B+, quality wrestling. They shook hands after the bell before Danielson gave Kingston the finger, which led to Akiyama slapping him. So Brian kicked him in the balls, and Eddie tackled him. They brawled. And that led to a trios match booking with one of those five-second graphics already on screen. So on Dynamite, we got Kingston and FDR against Blackpool Combat Club. This was a three-segment match. Eddie got triple-teamed for a long stretch with Dax barely breaking a fall. Kingston hit a back fist and FTR hit an inverted doomsday device on Danielson for a broken fall. BCC got the faces and submissions. Commentary told us the awful machine gun chops were cool. There were no tags with all six guys in the ring simultaneously for like a good five-minute stretch. Danielson caught Kingston uh, with the knee, but he refused to cover. He locked in a triangle and refused to release it even after winning via referee stoppage. The Bucks later got in Eddie's face backstage, insisting he dressed like a champion, suggesting they might need a dress code. The match was fun. I wouldn't call it great for the aforementioned reasons. It just completely fell apart in the second half. I also dislike the booking of the champion losing to the challenger in a six-man match when Dax or Cash Wheeler could have easily taken the fall. With the way this played out, made me want like Kingston Danielson last man standing, but we're not going to get that. We're just going to get a regular match. Now there is a stipulation for that match. Win or lose, Danielson has to shake Kingston's hand after the match. And if that sounds familiar to you at all, that's because it was almost an identical stipulation that Eddie had in his match with Chris Jericho two years ago at the same show, Revolution. That night there wasn't a handshake because Jericho refused after losing. I went 3.5 stars on the B for this match. It was easily the best match on Dynamite. The others were actually pretty rough with the exception of the women's match, which I did enjoy a little bit. Predictions here for both matches are actually extremely tough. On one hand, you don't necessarily want Eddie to lose to Brian when all Danielson has been doing is disrespecting him and Kingston just went ahead and won the Continental Crown tournament to retain his titles He's someone who I think is more likely to defend them overseas than Danielson right now. But you also have Danielson, who's continuing the final year of his full-time in-ring career and putting a strap on him that he can then drop to someone eventually and put them over, not necessarily on his way out, but as part of his leaving the promotion, that would make a lot of sense. And then you go to the other match, FTR is the quote-unquote real tag team, the, the guys that are always teaming together. Whereas Moxley and Claudio are teaming together more for this specific occasion. You also need to remember that either Sting and Darby Allen are going to vacate the titles at the end of the show, or the Young Bucks heels are going to be champions coming out of it. So you have to believe the winner of this match will end up being the number one contenders, even if that's not official. And I do legitimately believe that both of these matches can go either way. I'm going to kind of surprise myself a little bit and go with a clean sweep for Blackpool Combat Club. I think they really need to be elevated back again as an entire group. It would be great to see Danielson 
win this championship. It's technically, in terms of the way AEW promotes it, a triple crown. So he'd be able to claim three different titles. Uh, if memory serves, I'm thinking back, I don't think he's won anything thus far in AEW. Not that he needs to, but if you're going to have a title match, then, you know, pay it off with something for one. So I think Brian wins. He Maybe Eddie earns his respect and he does get that handshake. Mox and Claudio, I don't think they cheat, but they are heels. Maybe they do something a little nefarious and, and beat FTR. But I think that's the best booking. Put Blackpool Combat Club over together. Allow them to gain power in AEW. And really let them develop into something that to this point they haven't, even though they, they're immensely popular and they're some of the best wrestlers on the entire roster. Let's move to the international championship. Orange Cassidy defending against Roderick Strong. Strong on Rampage beat Jake Hager in a rough match with limited storyline relevance given the save last week. Orange came down and threw Hager his purple hat, which led to a run that only ended via distraction and a knee strike. This was really tough to watch. And then on Dynamite, for no reason whatsoever, Orange defended the title against Nick Wayne in what was termed an open challenge. Yet the match was made before the challenge was open, like before we knew it was an open challenge. This after Cassidy did not defend the title in two singles matches against the Kingdom, one of which was a Texas death match for no reason. But then four days before Revolution, the title is now on the line against a guy completely out of nowhere. Make it make sense. Orange no-sold a German suplex and hit beach break for a false finish. Then Kingdom came down to distract Orange with his crew evening the odds. Wayne got distracted and ate Orange Punch for the retention. So Orange, going into Revolution, didn't even retain in strong, clean fashion before getting attacked by Strong immediately after the bell. It's so illogical. This guy has been, look, Orange Cassidy went from someone when he initially debuted, I did not care about and thought was stupid to someone who I believe is a legitimately awesome wrestler. I like him on my screen. I appreciate when he puts on a really high quality match with a really high quality opponent. But there is no one in AEW right now, you could say no one in all of professional wrestling. And I mean that WWE and AEW, I know there's a lot more wrestling beyond that. But you can make an argument there is no one in both companies, but especially AEW, more overexposed than Orange Cassidy. I get there was a period of time where they were doing the fighting champion gimmick. That worked. He lost the title. He won it back. And they just continued that gimmick. The guy does not need to fight once or twice a week. He should not be defending the title against nobodies and then not defending the title against people who maybe he actually should be defending the title against. It's way too much. Much of it is illogical, as I just said. And I've almost reached the point where when I see him on my screen, I groan, not because I don't want to see him wrestle, but because I just know that whatever he's going to do is just going to annoy me and piss me off. In terms of a prediction, you have to have Roderick Strong win the title here. I mean, he's a good person to be international champion. They need to transition the title off of Orange. And you have Undisputed Kingdom right now. They came in and they said, our mission statement is to win all the gold in AEW. I think Kingdom still have those ROH tag team titles. I assume they do. Adam Cole can't wrestle. Wardlow is about to presumably win a number one contendership and go after the AEW championship. So Strong's mission from the beginning was to win the international title. They should either have the numbers game or at least enough numbers where we get some type of convoluted distraction finish. And ideally, Strong walks out of this show as the international champion. 
Let's move to the TNT Championship. Christian Cage defending against Daniel Garcia. There was no build for this whatsoever on Dynamite. I assume they will address it on Collision this coming Saturday. Of course, this was supposed to be Adam Copeland in this spot. And if it was Copeland, I would have predicted a title change. Since it's not, and we know the way AEW and Tony Khan typically book, my assumption is they're just going to push that off for the next pay-per-view or for a very special episode of Dynamite. Whenever that match happens, the title will change, which means right now it won't. I could make an argument that it should. Guys like Daniel Garcia, they need that rub. And Garcia beating Christian, maybe with Copeland, who maybe won't be cleared to wrestle, but he could be cleared to come down and interfere and distract, that would be pretty cool if they did something like that. Ultimately, I don't think they will. The numbers game will catch up to Garcia. FTR, who has been working with him a little bit, and Daddy Magic. Daddy Magic can easily be taken out by the patriarchy. FTR, They could have a match already, or they could be preparing for their match later, unavailable to help. Christian Cage retains the TNT title. Women's Championship, Tony Storm defending against Deanna Perrazzo. You know, Tony's gimmick, people absolutely love it. They are going crazy about it. I am done with it. I just don't care. There was a period of time I thought it was pretty cool, but it doesn't entertain me the way it does other people. Now, that's notwithstanding anything other than to point out that Storm is the hottest female talent in AEW right now because of the gimmick. Deanna Prazo's come in. She's a real solid signing, a more talented women's wrestler than a lot of the other people in the division. But they've done absolutely nothing in the build for this match, which, by the way, included it not being built on the go-home dynamite. The assumption is that it will be built on collision this coming Saturday. But they've done nothing to make me think that Prazo should win the title, nor have they done anything for me to actually want her to win the title. I think this is real cut and dry. She probably cheats. Maybe Mariah May helps. Storm retains the women's championship. And really at this point, with Mercedes Monet coming in in a couple weeks, she should be the one to beat Tony. So any title match involving Tony between now and her fighting Mercedes, I'm just going to immediately predict Tony to retain. And then when that match does happen, I will predict Mercedes to win. Next, we have the AEW championship. Samoa Joe defending against Swerve Strickland and Hangman Page in a triple threat match. Now, Dynamite opened with Hangman limping to the ring on a crutch. He was going to address his availability for the title match. This was a kayfabe injury to cover what people were told was another situation that might have prevented him from joining the match as booked. It seemed like it was a kayfabe injury just to be a kayfabe injury. Hangman talked about his love for AEW and his title win a couple years ago. He recalled calling the triple threat booking horseshit, saying it's ironic that it's indeed going to be a singles match not involving him. Swerve immediately entered, saying you can't escape fate or destiny. Then Joe came out, laying down the law like usual, but also twice said he wasn't sure whether Page was in or out of the match. Page said he was out of the match. Hangman's like, I'm not cleared. I'm not going to be able to wrestle. So by Joe twice saying, I don't know if he's really in or out, that basically alluded to what was going to come next in the segment And for me, even though I already kind of knew what to expect or I was expecting what eventually happened, it was like an unforced error by Joe who does not make unforced errors on the mic. So Swerve leaned over the ropes, telling a sob story, threatening Joe, said, I'll send you back the commentary wearing a poncho. There were two WWE references in this from Swerve. Of course, Hangman attacked him from behind while he was prone with the crutch. He knocked him out cold as Joe smiled uh, before... Hangman walked around just fine in the ring and the segment ended. Now, Salmon Jacket, this was not. That's what they were going for, mostly. I got a lot left in the tank! But 
it was executed well, even if it wasn't executed to that level. Swerve sold the crutch attack as a total knockout. Hangman was fired up as hell, taking him out. It was a worthy go-home segment for Revolution that upped the intensity in a feud that has pretty much been intense already the entire time. It was just extremely solid all the way around. Now, coming into this match, there are only two competitors who I think should be booked to win the title. And one of them is not Swerve Strickland. And you may say, well, Silver King, why would you not want Swerve to win when A, you sing his praises all the time, and B, it seems pretty obvious that before the year is out, he's going to be AEW champion. Well, the reason is I want Swerve to win the title one-on-one against somebody. And I don't know who that's going to be. It could be Samoa Joe. It could be Hangman Page. It could be Wardlow, where he topples this giant who takes the title in short order. But I do believe that him winning potentially, I don't want to call it via happenstance, but in a triple threat situation where he throws Joe out of the ring and happens to pin Hangman after someone else hit him with a finisher, that's not putting him over as strong as he potentially could and should be put over. So that means for this match, my two potential winners are Samoa Joe and Hangman Page. Now, it would make sense for it to be Hangman if you want to run Hangman Swerve Part 3, or I guess Part 4 technically, because their other match was a draw. Uh, You want to run that match back and have Swerve then win the title off his nemesis, Hangman. The problem is all three of these guys technically now are heels. The two heels we want to root for are Samoa Joe and Swerve Strickland, who are the most dastardly heels, whereas Hangman Page is actually the babyface who's turned tweener heel really for no reason in the match. So if you wind up with Swerve Hangman Part 4, and Hangman's already lost twice to this guy, then you would say, well, doesn't Hangman need to get a win? I would say yes. So for me, the best booking they can possibly do is to have Samoa Joe retain the title. You push off Swerve winning just a little bit, have him do it later this year, June, July, sometime in the summer, and you try to inject AEW with some momentum with a brand new fresh face champion right as the summer concludes and you go into football season and you need that elevation through the end of the year. We saw what happened this year with MJF. He was a super hot champion and then they changed his booking. They did the baby face stuff and it worked for all in and it worked for all out, but it completely petered off after the fact. That's not going to happen with Swerve. So again, if I'm booking and I think this is what Tony Khan is thinking as well, I could be wrong. I I can't predict what he's going to do. But I hold off the swerve deal until he can win one-on-one clean over someone. You want that moment to be as big as it possibly can be. And because it's a triple threat, it's easy for Samoa Joe to pin one of the two guys and have it be in the same way that I suggested. Swerve hits house call. He hits JML driver. um, Then Joe throws him out of the ring, pins Hangman. Hangman's pissed that he got pinned, you know, goes after Swerve, they redo their match. There's so many different ways you can go with it. But ultimately, I'm going to predict Samoa Joe retaining the title. And that's one of the reasons why I predicted some of those other title changes on the card. Let's go ahead and move now to what is expected to be the main event of Revolution. The Tag Team Championships on the line. Sting and Darby Allin defending against the Young Bucks in a tornado match that will also serve as Sting's final match, his retirement match in AEW. 
Now the Bucks won another squash on Rampage. This time they wore all black. Then they gave Tony Schiavone a $25 Amazon gift card as an apology for him falling last week. And they also cut an immensely rough promo saying they were father time coming for Sting. On Dynamite, the Bucks said their meeting with Ric Flair last week was great and they hoped to formally thank Sting with an exit interview involving bats before the night was out. The Jacksons approached Sting's locker room later, but when they entered, there were a bunch of black bats hanging from the ceiling, like baseball bats. So Nick Jackson swung his bat at a chair. The Bucks entered in the main event and they taunted some planted fans in the crowd who were wearing sting masks. One of them was Darby, who attacked over the barricade, one on two. So he was quickly laid out, took a knee, bunch of bat shots. He was getting choked out in the middle of the ring with a bat as Ric Flair entered. So Flair gingerly walks down. The Bucks held Darby prone so that Flair could swing a bat at him. Instead, he weakly poked them in the eyes and took the softest low blow I have ever seen in my entire life. After all of this, Sting's entrance music hit. So the Bucks ran to the top of the ramp with bats, only for Sting to descend from the rafters in classic fashion, landing at ringside. Darby was suddenly totally okay. They beat the shit out of the Bucks. Tony Schiavone nearly had an aneurysm and dynamite went off the air. So in kayfabe, Sting lets his guy, Darby, get the ever-loving shit kicked out of him. He lets his 75-year-old friend, Ric Flair, get his ass kicked just so he can make a cool entrance. I mean, let's not be flippant about it. That's exactly what happened. Now, was it sick as hell? to see him descend from the rafters, you bet your ass it was. Awesome. He even had the trench coat, the slumped pose. It was a perfect recreation of Sting in WCW. I also would have been fine though, if this was his entrance at Revolution, his the final entrance of his career. And he lands right on top of the stage. The segment on Dynamite was an absolute travesty. It was a 0.0, a market zero, Uh, One big pile of shit. I would have played all those sound drops, except Sting's entrance. That saved the entire thing. It's probably one of the most zero to 60 wrestling segments I can ever remember. Because for as absolutely horrible as it was, that moment at the end made sitting through the rest of it all worthwhile. It was great to see Sting do that. He got a great reception. I wish it happened in front of more than 3,000 people in Alabama. But I digress. So that was the go home. Now we need to predict the match. First, I love that they're doing Tornado. I'm of the belief that every single AEW tag team match, with perhaps the exception of matches involving FTR, maybe they can have their own separate rules. Every other tag team match might as well be a Tornado match because those are mostly the rules they abide by anyway. What I don't like, and I've told you guys this for weeks, is that the titles are on the line. They were ham-fisted in here. They didn't need to do a title. I don't want to call it stipulation, but they didn't need to do a title match. It's just completely unnecessary. They could have kept the tag team titles on Big Bill and Ricky Starks, had them lose them, maybe in the FTR um, Blackpool Combat Club match, make that a triple threat, have them drop the titles. You have this be a regular match, and that's it. All you need is that it stings retirement match. You don't need anything else. Now, what's really interesting here is that Sting is completely undefeated in his AEW career, never lost. Now he's also never had a singles match, but you need to kind of 
consider this beyond Sting because for Sting, it's been a great way to like rebuild his legacy after the WWE run, which wasn't actually that bad. People look back on it and they, you know, shit on it, whatever. He got injured against Seth Rollins, but it was pretty cool when he came back and had the match. All that was cool. And he had the situation with, you know, Triple H that was completely overbooked with all the NWO stuff and all the DX stuff. And it just, it was ridiculous. The biggest issue was we never got Sting and The Undertaker, which is the match everyone wanted. They should have done it at WrestleMania 31. They ultimately didn't. But coming out of it, Sting was injured and the thought was he was never going to wrestle again. He recovered and Tony Khan gave him the opportunity. He took advantage of it. And he had that final run of his career that a legend like him deserves. Now, me personally, I've never been a Sting fan. It's not anything against him. When I was growing up watching wrestling, I watched WWF. WCW, I would occasionally come across when I was flipping through the channels on TV, but it was not something that I really watched. When Nitro started going head-to-head with Raw, some of you, I know we're super young. I'm sure we have teenagers listening to this podcast to some degree, and people in their 20s. Well, let me just tell you guys something, okay? And I hate to be like back in the day when I was a kid, but this is the truth, okay? When I was a kid, there were no such things as DVRs. There were no such things as streaming services where you could simply hit the record button and any show you wanted would record. There was no such thing as on demand where if you missed something, you could go back and watch it. And there wasn't even really pirating yet. That didn't happen until I was like in college where you could download a show if you missed it illegally. None of that was really possible. So you either pretty much had to watch Raw or Nitro. And I watched Raw because I was a WWF fan. Now, the only option we did have was a VCR. And what you could do was you could record another channel as you were watching a different channel. I forget what would happen if you flipped between them. Let's not get into the technical details of it. That was a long time ago. But I wasn't going to sit and record every single episode of Nitro. So there was a period of time where Nitro started getting hot and the NWO started and all that. And I did not watch NWO. Like I did not see the formation of NWO on TV. That's all stuff that I watched after the fact through you know packages and, and videotapes and all that type of stuff. But I was watching WWF. At some point after NWO started and WCW started getting hot, that's when I started flipping between the shows. But if you're someone who's only getting into WCW by occasionally flipping the channel and you're always watching Raw over Nitro, then you're not someone who's suddenly just gonna buy into Sting being this awesome wrestler. He was just a guy in face paint who had a Scorpion logo, who descended from the rafters, looked pretty cool, but always beat the shit out of everyone, never really sold, never really put anyone over. And I say all of that to say this, for as great as his AEW run has been at rebuilding his career and allowing him to go out on his own terms, have a bunch of great matches, he's exceeded every single expectation that anyone could have ever had for this run. It's fair to look at it from another lens and say that this guy has gone undefeated his entire AEW career. He's helped no one except for his own legacy. Now, maybe he's gotten some eyes on Darby Allen, but I would argue that Darby would be much more successful and accomplished in his career had he not been tied to Sting this entire time. But if they retain, and this is where I get into the prediction part of it, then we're going to get another tournament for the AEW tag team titles. Or the other option is that after this undefeated run where Sting put over nobody, again, except for himself, the Bucks are the ones, the EVPs of the company are the only people 
to get that retirement rub. The only people to defeat Sting in his entire AEW career, they're the ones who get the tag team titles. And this is just booking into a corner. Now, maybe they have something else up their sleeves. And the way this is booked has been so well thought out that at the end of the day, we're going to sit back and say, wow, that was perfect. It makes sense. I'm glad they put the titles on the line, that whole deal. But coming into it, when it comes to making a prediction, we're really left with only one of two options. One, the titles are retained, Sting ends his career undefeated, and they start a tournament. Two, the Bucks hand Sting a defeat. He goes out on his back like legends are supposed to when they wrap up their careers. You know, The Undertaker didn't. I had a problem with that as well. But Sting actually takes the L. The Young Bucks are now, you would think, in kayfabe, massive heels. They've bloodied this guy up. They attacked his family. And now they take the titles from him and beat him in the final match of his career. And they go on a heel run. And they're super over, potentially, as heels. And I don't know that either option is great. I think a lot of people are assuming Sting's going to win and retain just because he's never lost yet. But I don't see a huge reason for them to return the Bucks, completely change their gimmick, go this heavy in that direction, and do the Ric Flair moment on the go-home show as opposed to during the match. I thought they were going to save that for during the match where Flair, you would think he's about to turn on Sting. He doesn't. He attacks the Bucks. Sting and Darby get up on them, and then Flair factors into Sting's win in the final match of his career and raises his arms. Because they did that on the go-home show, that leads me to believe there actually will be a title change, and the Young Bucks will beat Sting and Darby Allen for the tag team championships in the final match of Sting's career. So that wraps up the prediction portion here for the AEW Revolution Ultimate Preview. Let's go ahead and provide you with our pre-show expectation grades. Now, I will note at this point, we of course will have the AEW Revolution Instant Analysis Sunday night as soon as that show goes off the air. Vintage Chris Vanini will join me for that show. Before it begins, I will get his pre-show expectation grade. And as always, we will post pre-show and post-show polls on Twitter at Getting Overcast. That way you can provide your expectation and end of show grades that will be part of our instant analysis. But as far as I'm concerned, going into this show, I'm gonna give you a pre-show expectation grade of B+. And here is why. The two main events, the Tag Team Championship and the AEW Championship Triple Threat, I have almost no doubt That's going to be a banger. The rest of the card, I'm not so sure. Like, Storm and Perrazzo, I've seen nothing from them recently to make me excited for the match. Cage and Garcia, I think they'll have a good wrestling match, but I don't think I'm going to be that enthused for it. Orange and Roddy are going to put on a banger. I think that's going to be one of the surprise, sneaky matches of the night. But with so many other things on the card, I don't know that it's going to get the time or the booking where it's really going to shine. I think there's going to be distractions, interferences, things like that. Kingston Danielson, FTR Moxley, and Claudio, those two matches combined, certainly they have high ceilings, but if it's just work rate for work rate without much storytelling, I don't know how much I'm going to care. Will Ospreay and Kanosuke Takeshka, if you're going into the show and you had to put 
odds on it, then I would say that's the most likely five-star caliber match on the entire show. But there's also no real storyline build. It's two people from the same faction fighting, and there's probably going to be a turn at some point in there. And they're giving it to us almost in a way where they're forcing it on the show where it could have been built up separately or Osprey could have just debuted on TV and they could have done this for the next pay-per-view. It just seems like they had Willie's available. So they're like, we want to get him on the show as soon as possible. And then the all-star scramble, I think is pretty predictable of what's going to happen with Wardlow. And I'm not excited particularly about the competitors in that match. So this is a show where I believe, and we talk about this all the time when we do our post-show grades, uh, the show grade overall is not simply an average of the individual match grades. This is a show that could have three, four, five, A to A plus matches. And that may be incredible, but that doesn't necessarily mean the show in totality is going to be an A or A plus show. I think it's immensely strong. It's the best booked AEW pay-per-view that they've given us, I'd say in half a year. At this point, it goes to show you the difference in what is possible from a booking and creative standpoint when you actually spend, you know, two months plus building a show as opposed to throwing shit together in three or four weeks or in that one case, what did they have? Three shows in a six-week span? I mean, that was absolutely ridiculous. This is what it needs to be. Now, I think AEW in 2024, they're probably going to give us like nine pay-per-views and they're going to get three or four ROH shows, way too many but it's what they're going to do. They want to make money. They think people are going to buy all of them. We're getting to the point. You know, we said this after the last show, after World's End. In retrospect, we wish we had not bought that show. I don't think anyone's going to feel that way coming out of Revolution. This has a chance to not just be one of the best shows that AEW has put on. I think it has a chance to be the highest grossing from a um, pay-per-view buy standpoint show that AEW has ever put on. Because not only do you have the AEW diehards who are going to buy it. You have the people who are usually on the fence or who maybe don't buy the shows when they put so many in a short window, they're going to buy it. And then you're going to have the old school wrestling heads and people who really like Sting who are going to want to see his last match. So this is going to be, I think, a pretty great show. It's in Greensboro. It's basically sold out, 15,000 people. One of AEW's most um, populous uh, wrestling crowds, I think, of the company's entire tenure. I think we're in for a treat on Sunday night. And I would not at all be shocked if we are talking next on Sunday. Now I'm saying this was an A show or an A minus show. It's just that going into it, my expectation grade is slightly lower. So that folks wraps up this edition of the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast from a scheduling standpoint. Let me just remind you that we will be back Sunday night as soon as Revolution goes off the air with your instant analysis podcast. And then we'll be back next Tuesday for your WWE show. Same bat time, same bat channel. Next Thursday will be your following AEW and NXT show. So we're on a pretty regular schedule going forward right now over the next four or five weeks before WrestleMania 40. I appreciate all of you listening today on the way out. Let me hit you with some reminders first that the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast is all about So please remember to head on over to Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Leave a five-star rating on Apple. Take a little extra time. Leave a five-star written review. If you do, we will read it live right here on the show. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast for episode drops, news, analysis, highlights, all of that good stuff. Twitter is also where you can send questions and comments for the show. 
and where you can vote in the pre and post show polls Sunday surrounding AEW Revolution. Also, please remember, I happen to love the number five. And I hope you do as well, because for $5 a month or 50 for the entire year, you can become an official getting overhead. Just visit buymeacoffee.com slash getting over, sign up, you will get bonus audio, the fastest five minutes in professional wrestling, instant reactions to Raw, NXT, Dynamite, and SmackDown, plus exclusive news posts every Friday. Again, that is buymeacoffee.com slash getting. Appreciate all of you lending us your ear holes for this edition of the program. This is the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, signing off and leaving you with just three final words. Bye for now. <laughs>